Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. morning nancy my name is gracie and i'm abby and if you're new to the show welcome and if not well then welcome back the two of us have been friends since forever and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you all while drinking a nice cup of coffee <gasps> today we'll be discussing a24's horror comedy slice written and directed by austin vesely the film stars Zazie Beetz and Chance Bennett with Ray Gray, Marilyn Dodds-Frank, Catherine Cunningham, Will Brill, Elon Noel, Hannibal Buress, Tim Decker, Joe Keery, Chris Parnell, and Paul Shear appearing in supporting roles. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Specific trigger warnings for this episode can be found in the show notes. Okay, are you still here? Great, then let's get this morning started. Abby, would you be so kind as to read the plot summary? For the citizens of Kingfisher, ghosts are a natural part of daily life. In fact, ghosts coexisted among Kingfisher's living citizens until gentrification gave them the boot and they were forced to live in an abandoned urban area of Kingfisher known as Ghost Town. Soon, a string of murders plague the most vulnerable population, food delivery drivers. First, it's a group of workers from a Chinese restaurant, and then the poor souls who work for Perfect Pizza Base. Will the workers of Perfect Pizza Base figure out who is killing off local delivery drivers? Will Kingfisher citizens ever get their pizza delivered on time? Dun, dun, dun! Tune in <laughs> next week to find out. <laughs> thanks abby okay mm -hmm. so let's talk a bit about the production of this film but first i want to draw attention to the 2023 writers guild of america strike uh and the sag after strike uh that is currently going on as of recording this episode um after a bit of like back and forth between Abby and I and like trying to figure out if we should talk about the movies that were produced <laughs> by these certain <laughs> shall not be named companies, mm -hmm. um, we decided that we should just scrap the movie that we were going to do for September and talk about a film made by A24. Now, I know a lot of people don't like A24 films. You know who you are. But you got to admit... And even though they are an arguably larger indie company, as far as I know, they're still the only well-known film company that has agreed to all the terms that the WGA and SAG-AFTRA have requested. So, mm. because of that, <laughs> I think that they deserve some recognition on our little podcast. Also, the last three movies we covered this season were mostly huge fucking downers. <laughs> We wanted to, yeah, so we wanted to talk about a like fun comedy horror film. And this film does have a lot to say, but that was like a big thing as well. We were like, every single film that we had been picked out, that had been picked out, was like a huge downer. Mm -hmm. And Abby had a good idea where she was like, we need to talk about something not so sad. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So something not so sad, something A24, we came up with Slice. Um, so there you go. Here we are. <laughs> so if this yeah, episode... You all. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're all so lucky that we didn't choose It Comes at Night. <laughs> <laughs> oh my fucking God. I saw that film in theaters. I, that is one I'm A24 sorry. film that I hate <laughs> so much. Um, uh, anyway... Oh, God. So if you're an older lady like me, um, you might not have known 
that Slice writer, director, and actor Austin Vesley met Chance the Rapper 12 years ago in Chicago while documenting a listening session in 2011. According to Eric Skelton, Vesley found himself behind the camera on a majority of Chance's early videos and helped carve out his visual identity while shooting and editing clips for 10-day standouts like Fuck you, Tom Boot. Is that how you pronounce that? No, it's supposed to be like, fuck you talking about. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Fuck you, Tom (laughs) Boot. Oh, man. I don't know any of this. Um, 22 offs (laughs) and brain cells. Oh, God. God. And those of you that don't know, like me, 10 Day was Chance's first album or mixtape, really. Um, And that was released independently in 2012. So, um, yeah, okay. Skelton <laughs> writes, <laughs> I don't know any Fuck of this. Fuck you, Tom Boot. <laughs> Fuck you, Tom Boot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh geez. Okay. okay, so Skelton writes, more than just collaborators, the two became friends, sharing moments like the time Chance wandered over to Vesley's place on acid on his 19th birthday because he had nowhere else to go. <laughs> According to Austin Vesley, truthfully, I just sort of fell into the music video thing, partially because of Chicago's rich music scene. I think I've always considered myself a writer first, so writing and directing features has been the dream. And the cool thing was, I never felt more purposeful than when I was directing this movie. I know he meant he was he was talking about Slice there. I think that's so sweet. So Skelton continues saying, Slice began as an idea for a short horror film, drunkenly scribbled on a notebook that read, person orders pizza to houses, kills the driver. And in the years that followed, that concept took a brief detour as a pilot for a television series before finding its final form as a feature film script. Then, once things were in place, Vesley's decision about who to cast in the film's leading role was a no-brainer. The role of Dax Lycander was offered to chance, unquote. So this is, like, this to me makes so much sense. Because while watching this film, I was thinking about how this would have actually been a great TV show. Like, mm-hmm. the slow build-up to who the villains are, meeting all the different characters, like, all the different storylines... I think that's it's kind of too bad that it didn't become a TV show. I I do think it would have been better received and maybe I don't know. For me, I think I would have been a little bit more interested in it, I think. Um yeah. But maybe someday. I mean, this could just turn into it. They do that all the time. You can just turn this into a TV show someday. Maybe Netflix will. I don't know. Who knows? Right. It has a lot of potential. Mhm. Okay, so Vesley said of Slice, quote, People ask me often if the film is really scary. I hope it has moments, but it's more of a comedy for me. Tonally, I was really inspired by Twin Peaks. And if that's if that says anything, Vesley yeah. says. Yep. Vesley also says, I studied Paul Thomas Anderson's movies to figure out how to balance multiple narratives. TV shows as well, like Twin Peaks, to discover how to establish a sense of place. I guess this movie is like Magnolia with ghosts. Just kidding. Kind of. Unquote. (laughs) (laughs) So Skelton says, while Slice takes place in a fictional city, it was important for Vesley to shoot the film in and around Chicago. I think that the city is experiencing a period of growth in the film and TV industry, and I wanted to be a part of that, Vesley says. My career so far has been as a Chicago filmmaker, so to duck out for my first feature when there's so many talented people working in the industry here would not have been the move. I got to work with a lot of people from my music video crews, people I was in school with. It was an incredible experience, unquote. And from what I understand, the film was mostly shot in, I think it's, Joliet, Illinois, Joliet, Illinois, which is like a small city just outside of Chicago. In an interview with the art of the title, 
Vesely talked about how 80s schlock films were also a big influence on the look and feel of the film. Mm-hmm. Vesely says, I think there was just a genuine approach to making stuff that you would consider schlock without being totally disparaging. Like a John Carpenter movie where you just like commit to the world and go hard for it. Whether it's Big Trouble in Little China or Escape from New York or something like that where you can just go big. I really like that, unquote. Oh, I know he was so excited to make this film. Vesley continues saying, visually, the first thing that came to me when I was coming up with a story was the pizza delivery thing. It's nice to go back to that 80s feel, a commitment to a uniform, because it feels hyper stylized. When they come to your door now, they don't usually look like that, unquote. So according to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, on October 31st, 2017, a teaser trailer was released confirming a 2018 release. On August 6, 2018, a teaser poster parodying the logo of pizza chain Little Caesars was revealed, and this was followed by a Domino's pizza-themed teaser poster released August 9th, and then a Pizza Hut theme August 15th. And then an official trailer was uploaded August 21st, 2018. So they really tried to hype up this film, like a lot of like, like, if you see the posters for it, it's actually really funny. I know. So they were really like hyping this film up. Now, this next part is a little sad, especially since Vesley really, really, really loved making this movie. So Slice had a nationwide theatrical release on September 10th. But the very next day, the film was pulled from those theaters and released on VOD. And according to MovieWeb.com, quote, hot on the heels of its sold-out premiere in over 20 cities across these great United States, A24 has decided to skip out on the local Cinemaplex and is instead making Slice immediately available to rent or own, unquote. Now, I have my suspicions on why they made this very last-minute decision, and I am convinced it was the reviews. Oh. Because this film was, like I, like I said, it was sold out in all of the cities that it went, uh, premiered at. Yeah. So everyone showed up. Yeah. But this film was severely bullied by critics. Oh, my God. They dumped its books. They stole its lunch money. They gave it a swirly. And then for good measure, they twisted its titties on the bus ride home. (laughs) Oh, no. (sighs) Rough. The reviews for this film are so brutal. (laughs) It kind of feels a little bit like some of it's justified, but some of it is like, okay, like, calm down. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh... I know. I was actually really astounded with how many bad reviews there were of this film. And like, listen, like I said, I get it. Like the film has some problems and maybe I'm biased because I liked it, like warts and all. But like people were like, I think people were just disappointed in it, really. Um, Yeah. Sally Powell writes, in the past, you could spot a shitty film a mile off, but modern trashy movies fool you with their aesthetic. You're easily drawn in by fancy cameras and neon lighting, but when you get into it, it's all style and zero substance, unquote. And a down-to-the-bones review said, quote, Zazzy Beats is 100% wasted as Astrid. I actually think it's the movie's greatest crime. Zazie looks awesome. She's got piercings and is all tatted up and she's dressed like a punk baller and has an attitude and she appears in the shots, in these shots over and over, walking in slow-mo and flipping around a butterfly knife and that's it. Oh, and then she dies. Unquote. While I think all these opinions are valid, I think it's also fair to look at this film as it was intended. Like yeah. Richard Roper's you know, Richard Roper said, quote, slices schlock, but that's kind of the point, unquote. <laughs> and according to EJ Marino, quote, slices exactly like the food at your local pizza restaurant. Same parts delicious and not so good for you. For a lot of horror fans, they don't make films, films like Slice anymore. Current films in the horror comedy genre usually lean heavily towards one style and not thoroughly blending both, unquote. And Saloni Gajars points out, quote, not everything has to be hereditary levels of sinister or conversely veer into the extremely silly, scary movie category, which we'll talk about scary movie at the end of this episode. But 
Yeah. Yeah, I think. And this is probably A24's fault, which it normally is. Um, <laughs> they're marketing. God damn their, it. <laughs> their marketing is incredible. They have a great marketing team, and that's the problem. Yes. Yes. They, they sell things that aren't. This is why I don't ever watch trailers anymore. I really try not to because yeah. yep. um, unless I really don't care about the movie, I really like, I don't like getting hyped up. I don't like getting too hyped for things. <laughs> Isn't that sad? Because it's like, they're, you're expecting something different. And I don't, I want to go in now with no expectations to films that I watch because then I can like come up with like my own my own feelings because when i watched slice i was like well this is kind of good and obviously like you notice the glaring issues because it's a first time film for somebody right and not everyone's ari aster who makes a great first film <laughs> i know <laughs> i know but it's like i don't it, it was too harsh i thought it it, they were everyone was too harsh and i think a24 as much as we're trying to like Show, show them off because they agreed to SAG-AFTRA and WGA's terms, they still have a marketing issue. Yes. But also, I think people need to just maybe relax a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> like, like that quote says, like, you don't, not everything has to be one or the other. Like, you don't have to pigeonhole yourself into liking one kind of film like it's okay to laugh at things it's okay to be like wow this is terrible but it's so fun you know right it's it's okay it's okay everyone (laughs) yeah i think i think you and i both were like wow okay this film has problems but like it didn't like shoot your dog i know (laughs) relax my god and it had a lot of really really good commentary to it too like it does absolutely <sighs> anyway let's get into our discussion yeah so why pizza <laughs> <laughs> okay so first of all who doesn't love pizza i mean it comes in so many different varieties now and even if you say you're like lactose intolerant or you have to eat gluten-free, like, you have options, okay? Right, right. Pizza is universal. So I think the title and theme of this film gets overlooked, but there's a reason why it resonates so well with modern-day America while also incorporating, like, this mixed bag of eras through the clothing and the technology and appearance of the characters in the film. Like, it's kind of... um kind of a a mixed bag really but Mm -hmm. pizza is ubiquitous among all of the classes in our country like you can find it anywhere and everywhere and even if it's not that good pretty much nobody will turn down a slice of pizza like come on since seeing this film i have had pizza on the brain all month and i have eaten (laughs) me i have eaten it maybe four or five times this month i am serious my local pizza restaurant is probably like is this woman Okay. <laughs> she is ordering a ton of pizza in such a short amount of time. Should we call a doctor or a therapist? <laughs> like, oh no. Oh my gosh. Oh, and my brother-in-law was a pizza delivery driver when he was younger and he currently has a popular pizza making Instagram called Peas of Art. Oh my or god. It, like it kind of looks like piece of fart, but it's like <laughs> which is which is intentional. <laughs> But because he's a goofball, but um, it's at p i z z o f a r t on Instagram, and I'll link it in the show notes for anyone who wants to watch him make delicious pizza. It's awesome, and he has like thirty thousand followers. That's people, amazing. Yes, because people love pizza. Hell yeah, dude! Do you remember when my parents owned the pizzeria? <gasps> Yes, I do. Oh my God, Abby, you have a personal connection to pizza. Yeah, I do. Oh my God. I'm not even, I'm not even saying this because it was my family's, but like we made the best pizza. Like, oh my God, I would kill to go back and like (laughs) 
make myself a pizza from that pizzeria. But anywho. Oh my gosh. I do. I remember visiting your your family at the pizza place. We'd get pizza from you guys. <gasps> yes. Oh what a core memory just unlocked. I know. Those were the days. Um, so I think the whole theme and title surrounding this film lends to the idea, well, as far as like pizza delivery goes and stuff like that, it lends to the idea that people are for the most part like trustworthy and mm. pizza delivery is a relatively okay gig as far as entry-level jobs go and it's such a staple in our society for so many reasons it's like a great unifier really like pizza is the backbone of the united states <laughs> yes it is it's true according to an article in hearth and fire to be honest, it's hard to pinpoint an exact time and place. Um, they're talking about like when pizza delivery started. There may have been isolated cases of restaurants delivering pizza in the post-World War II era as car ownership became more commonplace, but it's generally acknowledged that the 1960s was the decade that pizza delivery became a widely accepted practice, which I thought was really interesting because of like how this movie pulls from a lot of different decades in America. So mm -hmm. the article goes on to say, pizza is beloved in this country. Its popularity is no accident. It has earned a place in U.S. culinary and cultural landscape by virtue of its versatility, convenience, affordability, and taste. Because of the variety of styles, crusts, and toppings, your pizza can be whatever you want it to be. Yes, my favorite option is build your own pizza. If somebody has that at a, at a pizza place, I'm like, yes, mm, I, I yes. will build my own pizza. Thank you. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yes. That's actually, I want to ask you that. I know I'm like putting it on the spot, but what is your like ideal pizza? Oh my God. Do you, um, if you could build your own pizza, like what would you build it as? Okay. So a couple different options. When I used to work at a wood-fired pizza place and I would always get this pizza, it had a a white sauce, like garlic base, and mm -hmm. um, fresh mozzarella, prosciutto, um, and oh my God, what was, they put a type of lettuce on there as well. And it came, so it came with chicken prosciutto and um, almost like a spinachy kind of lettuce. That was so good. But Ooh. if I'm just like ordering from an everyday pizza place, it's cheese, black olives, and pineapple. Wow. I'll say it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do actually <laughs> like pineapple on pizza. I don't see what the big deal is with that either. Yeah. Sorry. Um, I have a developed palate, you plebes. <laughs> God, I if I'm ordering from like a, a regular just pizza joint that like doesn't have the option to build your own pizza like I I just get cheese like I just like straight up like Kevin from home alone just like a thin oh my god the thinnest crust yes. cheese pizza oh. is exactly what I need and listen Buffalo I love you but the pizza in Buffalo is shit and they it is and sorry any buffalo listeners the pizza here is shit it is like too thick it's like a, because we're like right near the midwest we're like the border of the midwest you know yeah it's like half thick crust half it's like sweet and like pizza hutty is like kind of like the no. dough that's here and it is so bad however i have found some authentic new york style pizza places in buffalo that like that's where we get our pizza from like the, mm. the regular joint because it has to be thin crust so i like from a regular place new york style thin crust and just tomato sauce with cheese i love that i know keep it simple i keep it simple right everyone can eat it and it's in my household because we have a mix of meat eaters and vegetarians <laughs> um, but if I was going to build my own pizza, that white base with the garlic mm -hmm. and it would be fresh and shredded mozzarella, both yep. and ricotta and pesto drizzle with an olive oil drizzle, spinach oh. and uh, sea salt. That oh. is my favorite 
Like that's what I get if I can build my own pizza. I love oh, it. Oh my God, stop it right now. I know, I'm that telling you, so I've had pizza five times this month. <laughs> <laughs> I have been eating so much pizza. Hell yeah, and I, you I got know, to. And you can't stop me. I will do it again. <laughs> Good. Good. I but mean, anyway, as it um, goes, like, pizza is pretty good for you. It's got a lot of the, like, main food groups that you're supposed to eat. So I don't want to uh, Sure. <laughs> hey, listen, whenever we order pizza, my son comes to the door with either my husband or I, and he waves to the pizza delivery person or, like, high fives them. Like, and he does it while singing pizza, pizza party. Oh, my God. Yes. He sings that yes. song when pizza comes. He goes, pizza, pizza party, pizza, pizza party. <laughs> it's the cutest thing ever. It's truly oh a big event at my house when the pizza guy comes. Well, <laughs> it's yeah. Great. You got to. You got to you got to pay the pizza gods. <laughs> <laughs> that's the chant. That's the yep. chant that you sing. Yeah, that's true. Pizza party. <laughs> Anyway, I guess on to things that are not so fun. Yeah, no, we're gonna uh, we're gonna take it down a notch, okay, Gracie? <laughs> okay, sorry, no more laughing. We're, laughing. We're gonna is not talk. Yeah, no, 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 no happiness. We're gonna talk about trauma masked by horror comedy in a capitalist way. Yay! <laughs> so a lot of layers to this one, but uh, I'm sure, as our listeners know, you know. That if there's anything I love talking about when it comes to horror, it's trauma. Specifically, <laughs> how trauma affects later generations. And like I said, I'm sure our audience is like, yes, Abby, we get it. Trauma, it's the root of everything. Sure, sure, sure. But in this movie, trauma is captured in such a way that it makes it so easily relatable to a millennial audience while keeping in mind that it wasn't exactly millennials that put us in our current predicament. <laughs> Justice for millennials. Truly. Yeah. Yeah. So you know how Reagan was the devil and really put this country <laughs> in a hole? Yes. Well, Slice took that idea and they ran with it because we have this weird amalgamation of, like I said before, generations, technology, style, class systems, and all that kind of stuff. So the film is very obviously about how harmful the effects of racial classism can hurt large populations and destroy cities in one fell swoop, really. But it goes deep into the layers of how we got to that place with the imagery, which is something that mm. I really, really enjoyed about it. So um, we'll talk more about like how the monsters and stuff are shaped in this movie. But monsters have kind of always been used to represent others in this film, like quote unquote others. Like Frankenstein's monster and the bride and the wolfman, mummy, Dracula and Dracula's daughter, and even the creature from the Black Lagoon. They're all representative of those who don't fit that able white male status quo. And we know that the mentality that comes with casting others out is a sickly one, obviously. Mm. And this creates a never-ending cycle of making outsiders of those who can't, like, we can't abide letting into our society. So right. running a werewolf out of town who happens to be black sounds an awful lot like what would happen in a sundown town, right? Oh my god, that is so true. And I never thought of that. That's a great yeah. observation. Yeah, and the murder of a working class black woman who hangs around the riffraff seems like what happens when the police consider black women in quote unquote high risk situations less dead. Mm. And putting a strip mall up over the site of a mass grave in the name of burying shameful secrets and preventing hell from breaking loose literally. <laughs> Sounds like the all-American way of coping with traumas from the past that killed innocent people. You moved the gravestones, but you forgot to move the bodies! Yes! Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, 
These are just kind of a few examples of what this film gets right when it comes to capturing that trauma and in turn how we as a generation deal with it. Like, it's horrifying, but we make jokes because what are we going to do? Cry? No. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to get the point across to young people, you kind of throw humor, gore, intelligent characters, and social commentary into a pot and you stir. I want to bring up some research that our friend Nadia Moraga helped me out with. And um, it's this idea that hauntings in horror films can represent white flight and gentrification. And I think it's interesting that this film takes place outside of Chicago, which yeah. is like, you know, in, in the Midwest where <laughs> all of that was an issue. Um, Cabrini Green. Now, Cabrini Green is another one. Exactly. Um, Now, these articles that Nadia and I found focus mostly on, like, haunted houses, but they can be used to explain, like, the hauntings in the ghost town and the pizza joint. Um, According to Juan Valencia, 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 Mm -hmm. I think, according to Juan Valencia, quote, I argue that taking the elements of the subgenre and analyzing them against the backdrop of U.S. housing history and legislation reveals the deep-rooted racism, classism, and narratives of segregation and redlining embedded in the symbol of the house. Demonic presence in these films always appear as disrupting home comfort and stability and are always represented as black looming figures demons Mm. are thus effectively charged iterations of a threat to the american home based on this i assert that the true horrific subject matter explored in these films is that of contemporary american fear imbued colorist divisions around housing this will be symptomatic reading of the subgenre's components as telling revelations of something much more monstrous lurking beneath the surface unquote valencia continues quote analyzing the american history of home ownership reveals that a threat to the house as the subprime mortgage crisis was for the american public means a threat to the very essence of american identity we must examine however how this value of the home in turn displays an exclusively middle-class white heteronormative american identity and how these anxieties effectively resonate with an american identity fixated on consumer goods wealth and property to an obsessive degree homecoming and by extension the concept of home ownership is always expressed in the opening sequence of the post-recession haunted house film these opening sequences right away stress the importance which the house represents to our for our main characters paranormal activity is a film centered on a white perceptively middle-class couple experiencing increasingly violent supernatural attacks in their suburban san diego home before such paranormal attacks take place however the film opens with the tranquil setting of the suburbs in full view unquote And Nadia noted to me that the separation of Kingfisher proper and ghost town is represented as like an idyllic and is represented as idyllic and orderly. Um, And according to Sam J. Miller in their article titled haunted house films are really about the nightmares of gentrification. Quote, (laughs) again and again, we see fictional families move into spaces from which others have been violently displaced and the new arrivals suffer for that violence, even if they themselves have done nothing wrong. This thriving subgenre depends upon the audience believing on some level that what we have was attained by violence and the fear that it will be taken by violence. In the Mm. process, because mainstream audiences are seen as white and because gentrification predominantly impacts communities of color, the racial other becomes literally monstrous, unquote. Miller also writes, quote, the ghosts, the monsters, the bad guys, they're the murdered, the massacred, the disposed, the dishonored, revenge-crazed ghosts, brutal townies, ancient chthonic demons, spirits loosed from problematic Indian burial grounds. But of course, we'll talk about how this film handles monsters later on. It's interesting that the ghosts are the ones that were gentrified, that were pushed out. It's kind of exactly what you could read with, like, other haunted house films where the ghosts, like, just want to take back their house that they were kicked out of, basically. Yes. Yep. 
And interesting how, you know, people are always afraid of losing their home in the same way that they took it. Almost like karma's gonna come back and bite you in the ass. (laughs) 100%. Yes, exactly. Yep. And the use of the name Halcyon in this film is so rich. Like, Mm. when we use the word Halcyon, it it's often in reference to something from the good old days, like a reminder of when life was very good and everyone was happy and content. Yeah, Ugh. make America great again. Blah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> C.H. Newell writes, uh, right away, director-writer Austin Vesely touches on issues relating to urbanism and modernity. Modernity? Who knows how to say that word? Modern. (laughs) Who cares? (laughs) We hear about the beautification of Kingfisher relating to the urban renewal of the city, and this leads into one of the main plots concerning problems with gentrification and old burial grounds being paved over to make way for shopping centers and other city mainstays. Mm. A group called Justice 40,000 protests the development of these areas and warn of the greater evil that is capitalism. The group worry about erasure of the past, further suggestive of our modern inability to reconcile the past and present by subscribing to the capitalist idea of creative destruction. There's also the citywide trouble of relations between the living and the dead, which so obviously mirrors the tenuous racial relations of white people and people of color in big cities. Immediately, the table set for modern social commentary using a horror story as its mask. So the racial angle of Slice is never not present. One cop right. says, God, I hate werewolves, scum of the earth. He recounts yes. an accident. <laughs> he recounts an accidental. Ex- he recounts an accidental vehicular homicide in which his father was killed by a werewolf. You could replace werewolves with a non-white racial group, and this whole monologue would fit perfectly with actual white attitudes about people of color. Mm-hmm. The scene's a mark of great satire, at once hilarious and painfully truthful. Added to the werewolf-hating cop, Dex Lycander, played by Chance the Rapper, has to deal with constant stereotyping being a werewolf. He's presumed violent by everyone he encounters, and he's automatically linked to the crimes. Father Gore doesn't need to point out the irony of his being a black werewolf, right? He repeats... He's not that kind of werewolf, and nobody seems to listen. <laughs> this yeah, seems like a good transition right. to our next topic. Let's talk about cops, corporations, and corpses. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So, as always, the cops in the film take their sweet time. Actually, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't say as always. There are some really good investigators here and there, but... This film really plays on the idea that they really do take their sweet time solving the murders of the uh, less dead. And Mm. they spend lots of time perpetrating or perpetuating racism and they perform their duties in the worst way possible. It's dripping with tropes and the cops in Slice do everything in their power to point the blame on those in society deemed less than desirable. So Marsh and Bradley, the two cops, represent the duality of police work and how grim it is for the poor working class and people of color in Kingfisher and also the spooky creatures. Um, And (laughs) I just want to point out too although this film is very like schlocky it does mm-hmm. a really good job of doing like there isn't really a good cop bad cop because i don't know if there's really such thing as a good cop it's a very complicated uh institution <laughs> it's it's gray it's very gray nothing is yeah. black or white but I mean, even down to the way that the cops treat each other in the movie. Right. 
like there's yeah. a lot of humor in it but it's also very scary when you think about it like yes. how how the one cop like flips out on the other guy and he's like i deserve respect as an officer of the law yeah. and he sounds absolutely ridiculous but this is actually right. the attitude that a lot of cops take on so it's like mm -hmm. Just because you have a badge, you think that you deserve respect. So very interesting how that's portrayed in the film. And they really do the bare minimum of work to solve these murders. Um, right. So <laughs> speaking of doing the bare minimum for the community, <laughs> Jack, um, the owner of the pizza store, although he's a lovable character at times he really perfectly represents what it's like to work for a corporation like he is such a shill for this goddamn pizza place to the point that when the workers ask for time off for like when um their co-worker is killed he's like nah nah you think i should just give you the day off like he ends up giving them the day off obviously but but he's like, just, he's like, we got to work. He goes, being capitalism, right? Pizza is not going to make itself. Get to work. And it's like, Ugh. so. Yes. Yeah. And like, even when he's talking to the ghost that works for him, who's always talking mm -hmm. about like the pizza place being built on the portal to hell. He's like, all right, I get the history, but you know, we've been here for three years. It's our time now. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, forget that thousands of people died. Like, just move on. That was in the past. Oh, my God. So he he reminds me of, like, the cool but also has to follow the rules managers that I used to have in, like, food and retail. Like, I remember... Mm -hmm. <laughs> I remember commuting to work in the dead of winter, and I worked for a home decor chain... That rhymes with tier none. And, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I I had to call in because it was like a whiteout and I got written up for it. Like eight dollars an hour was not worth my life. Okay. Like people oh can people God. are not gonna come out in a blizzard to look at Papasan chairs. So calm down. <laughs> But that's exactly what it reminded me of. I was like, holy shit. Anyone who's worked in, like, food or retail understands this. But that's kind of, like, the corporate view of of characters that we get in this film. And um, the city's citizens who died in the sanatorium could absolutely be seen as our society's way of kind of covering up the lack of care for those who need it. So um, a lot of people attribute sanatoriums to sanitariums as they're pretty interchangeably used in our language. But I didn't um, realize there was a difference. Yes, I, I really didn't either until I researched this movie. But I guess sanatoriums were designed to help treat people with long-term or chronic illnesses. So... Hmm. The English language is so fun, but we Oh, can... it's so great. It's yeah. so easy. Oh, <laughs> the so best. easy to learn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we can definitely make the assumption that these people were sent to Halcyon Sanatorium because they maybe couldn't get the health care they needed otherwise. So right. they're kind of like just shoved into this place and then the whole thing burns down and people are like, oh, darn. Like, they're not oh. really disappointed about it like right it's just like well less people to take care of i guess yeah so yeah it is very very sad which like that kind of stuff happened all the time in our country's past so um yeah well yeah it was like keep people contained in certain areas and if something if they die they die and if they die in masses then you know better for us it's really sad Right. It's like um, if anybody has seen the documentary Cropsy or knows the urban legend of Cropsy, that was based on um, a sanitarium mm. that housed a bunch of um, mentally ill people and also people, you know, who were neurodivergent and stuff like that. And they were treated 
so 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 terribly and that there are a lot of ghost stories that have popped up because of it so if you're interested in learning more about that history definitely check out cropsy there's there's a, a really really like big story and history behind it but i think that we should transition into our next topic which is tackling millennial issues and how this film kind of approaches those issues (laughs) right and it's interesting that they do that because it you know it has a very 80s feel to it but um yeah the 80s is when millennials were born for the most part so late you know er, uh, mid 80s into the early 90s so yeah oh the 80s you mean like when reagan was president (laughs) is that what you mean starts it starts with reagan Yep. And it ends with Reagan. Anyway, continue. Trickle down my ass. <laughs> Ew. No, no, don't. <laughs> All right. So tackling millennial issues. Okay. Um, so Astrid had hung up her perfect pizza-based jacket long before she learned of her, uh, I guess, at this point, ex-boyfriend's murder. Um, yeah. Sean was her ex-boyfriend, I think. Yes. So this whole situation is kind of a testament to how we get ourselves out of shitty situations, but we can't totally peel ourselves away entirely. And in a society where like boundaries has really become a buzzword, I think one of the main things we fail to talk about as a younger generation is codependency on how scary this can be and Mm -hmm. i think this is actually this is a really really big millennial issue and in all honesty this might sound really harsh i'm sorry i'm a scorpio (laughs) um (laughs) it might sound harsh but astrid really didn't have to go back to work at a job that she kind of hated Like, she didn't have to take on the investigation of her ex-boyfriend's death or get wrapped up in a scheme to open a portal to hell or get murdered. Or did she? Yeah, because she had a job already with Hannibal Buress. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. She was was working. I mean, she didn't look like she liked that job either, but, like, she was, like, working. You know, she had moved on. But, yeah. But that's also, like, that's kind of another millennial thing, like, how we tend to job hop because we want something that at least brings us a little bit of joy. Like, Mm. I know that was definitely something that I went through for a couple years where I transitioned between different restaurants and, like, I stepped out of my comfort zone and tried something different and I absolutely hated it, like... The options are pretty limited for millennials when it comes to job hunting. And I think Mm -hmm. that this movie highlights brilliantly how a lot of millennials are forced to work in the service industry Mm -hmm. and just kind of, like, make the best of it. And even though we don't really like our coworkers, we end up becoming, like, very, very close with one another. Mm -hmm. I, I think that that's, like that's a big thing for people our age but to touch a little bit more on codependency which is a a big big issue for for kids our age um therapist sharon martin says of codependent youngsters codependency develops as a response to trauma but that trauma didn't necessarily happen to you it could have been Mm. several generations in the past for example an alcoholic grandparent or mentally ill great-grandparent Codependent behaviors and codependent thought patterns are learned. If you Mm -hmm. have codependent traits but didn't grow up with active addiction or mental illness in your household, there's a chance that one or both of your parents is also codependent. So it's definitely a generational thing. And I think that uh, we were handed a lot of codependency as we were coming up through the decades. So. 
This can be really hard to navigate when you're someone like Astrid, who isn't getting much help from the police because, according to them, you know, her boyfriend was just another junkie in their eyes. And, you know, now that she has become a ghost, she's on the outskirts of society by the standards of Kingfisher. So, uh, also, <laughs> real quick, the movie touches on what we'd call on Instagram toxic relationships <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes yeah i know so he was Ast so mean yeah Ugh. he was he's incredibly mean but that's kind of what addiction can do to you which is like mm. a whole other whole other topic but mm -hmm. astrid was trying to do the right thing by going after sean's killer but she gets sucked into a cycle that eventually gets her killed and even Sean says, like, you can't always save me. And mm -hmm. I think we are a generation that always wants to do the right thing because we have seen what not doing the right thing has done to people like our parents and grandparents. Mm -hmm. So Sometimes um, to a fault. Yes. Yes. You and know, that's sometimes where, like, to a fault. Yep. That's where the codependency kicks in um, mm. because we're trying to, like, save the people in our lives like our parents and stuff like that but or you know. we're trying to save people like we're, you know the social justice warriors or like the um the um keyboard warriors you know like we're we're we think that by like talking about stuff and posting online and doing that stuff and protesting it's like yes that is super helpful but like there gets to be a point where it's like we're not we're talking over pocs and mm -hmm. like we're talking for them and it's like well wait a minute <laughs> like step back you're helping but you're helping too much like you're you're hindering it by like talking over us you know and so yeah yeah absolutely as I, white people we yes. as millennial white people we have a tendency to talk over the people who actually need voices so yes 100% and uh, I think, too, a big thing with this movie, a lot of people, uh, as I was doing research for this, a lot of people had the gripe that um, Astrid gets murdered in the movie. And we'll, yes. we'll touch a little bit more on this later on, but um, I, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily not accurate. There are... Mm a lot of black people and people of color who die because they are trying to improve their situation or the situation of others. And it's often at the hands of white people or cops or what have you. So um, right. I think that was really important to show in this film. It was a commentary on that issue, in my opinion. But yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh my God. So <laughs> there are also the issues that Sadie has to deal with as an up and coming reporter. Like she's often brushed aside by veterans who tend to ignore her investigation of the weird happenings just mm -hmm. by sheer ignorance or just because they don't want her digging up dirt. Like she gets treated like garbage for wanting to know the truth. And that's something that I think every teen or early 20 something can relate to like right uh, on top of this we have an older generation of cis white women leading a movement that requires more diversity than what their tiny group has to offer yet they can't just get the fuck out and let someone else take the helm because it turns out that their solidarity is just for show it's for their own benefit so right like, even though you have someone like Sadie who literally is just like, I just want the facts and I just want to share what's going on with people, all these friggin' old white ladies are like, nah, get! <laughs> <laughs> Go on now, get! <laughs> are you talking mess about me? <laughs> like, <laughs> what? <laughs> Oh my, oh my god 
poor Sadie. I feel so bad for her in this movie. I but, know. I know. Yeah. Well, that's another thing too, right? Like, yeah, as a millennial, you're just like, it's like a catch 22, right? For it's like, we want experience. Like we want you to have all this experience, but you know, but it's like, I can't do this job without the experience. And it's yes. like, you know, and Sadie is trying to like get the experience by covering this story, but nobody will let her. And it's like, how am I supposed to move up if I can't do anything? Yes. And that's, yeah, definitely another issue that we have as well. <laughs> it's like the job postings that's like, you need three years of experience, but it's an entry level position. <laughs> Exactly. Stop I it. was literally <laughs> looking at just regular jobs the other day. It just was like, oh, I wonder if, if, if I just occasionally look to see like what's available in my area. And mm -hmm. I can't even tell you how many still say that you need three years of yeah. experience for an entry level job. And I was like, that is not how this works. That's not how any of this works. You little stinkers. Like, give me a break. Yeah. And <sighs> it's like, oh, Sadie could go be a, a takeout delivery driver but mm, you might get murdered so right that too <laughs> you like, know that's the thing you can't even do like, a, a basic job without like fearing for your life yeah, yeah yeah well and i think we should get into our our final uh topic of discussion definitely so let's talk about how monsters in this film are done the right way so we see the obvious tropes among the monsters, and we've discussed what monsters have symbolized throughout the history of horror. What I believe is very brilliant when it comes to being frightened about the monsters in this film is that the obvious monsters aren't the threat. No. It's the coven of witches who appear as regular old white ladies that present the biggest issue in the plot. Yeah. So plot twist, it's the old the, women. It's the old white the, women. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. So CH Newell again hits the nail on the head. They write Justice 40,000's women are eventually revealed as powerful witches. No coincidence these women are all white either. The irony with these ladies is evident in the way that they fight against capitalism and gentrification, but simultaneously blame ghosts and other spooky creatures for kingfisher's violent crime they're the worst of white feminism epitomized by being real witches rather than normal women accused unjustly of witchcraft vesely utilizes the witches to satirize all of the typical white liberals who may be in favor of some good social things while actively working against important things Mm -hmm. i.e. it's great white women are concerned about gentrified neighborhoods and likewise totally redundant when they perpetuate racist attitudes towards the people in those neighborhoods mm. this is one of the most ingenious aspects of the screenplay and it's so timely for 2018 can i just so, say one of the funniest things it's yeah. not funny but it's like it kind of is funny because I see like pride flags and like Black Lives Matter flags in some of the most affluent suburbs in Western New York. Yeah. And it's all white people that live there. Yep. It's all white, straight people that live in these neighborhoods. And it's like, mm -hmm. we're in solidarity with you, but don't you dare come here. And, you know, and it's like, it's like kind of like freaky for sure. Yeah, it's like those might be the same people who are landlords and say like, oh, I don't accept Section 8 for housing mm. payments. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, if you're actually an ally, then give these people a place to live. Like, right. ugh, it drives me nuts. So yeah. also what we view as like monstrous actually comes in to aid the characters by the end of the film. So... Dax's werewolf form, uh, like, literally destroys one of the witches, and, like, he actually helps the investigation and stuff like this, and uh, his powers allow him to survive in really terrible situations. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of likewise, Astrid's ghost form allows her to seek the truth about Sean's murder. So what we would see as, like, 
an anomaly or as something so wildly different actually ends up being like the factor that helps the entire situation. I don't know. It's just better. <laughs> and we're scared you know, of it because we don't understand it. I think that's right. kind of what I'm what I'm getting at here, but sure. And you know, something else I want to add here before we end the episode is that the POC characters in this film aren't the villains, right? Which is great. Um mm-hmm. it's a step up. But um, you know, and Astrid like we've mentioned Astrid dies um which is like that's like a harmful trope in horror where black characters die but she is still an active part of the story unlike when black characters die in horror films like they're usually just gone forever yes and stereotypically they die first which is awful yep um but in this film the first death in the film is like a white guy who which is also played by the director so it's kind of interesting um and she when she dies she just comes right back but now she's like a powerful ghost. So it's like, there's a play on that as well, which is nice. Um, mm-hmm. And Dax, who is a black character, is the monster hero, like you mentioned. Like, he's the Avenger, and he's a motherfucking werewolf. Like, he's cool. Yeah, so I love Dax. The black- yeah, and like, the black characters are like the main characters in the film. And in my opinion, they are treated like normal by like the writer and director. Mm-hmm. Um they're treated like normal people, normal characters. And it's like so wild that's like that stands out, you know? Yes. And like Mark H. Harris talks about how there are many black characters missing from Haunted House films and says, quote, this black hole so to speak, presents an interesting reversal of the days of the old S-P-O-O-K stereotype. And I didn't want to say it because it is a slur in this situation. Mm. When it was seemingly mandated that haunted house movies have a black comic relief role to react with a bug-eyed skedaddle to the sight or even mention of ghosts, that grotesque caricature has given way to arguably a more pernicious tool of image control exclusion creating a vacuum in which the only major ghostly releases with fe- with featured black roles are spoofs like marlon wayne's haunted house films and scary movie five all of which it could be argued revert back to modern interpretations of the spook archetype for laughs unquote oh. so and marlon wayne's is black and it is possible to like it is possible to like offend <laughs> You know, and it's the problem is that, like, it perpetuates that that um, archetype, you know, even if it's like you're trying to own it, you know, and you're and you're trying to like, especially with Marlon Wayans, you're trying to like make it your own and reclaim it, I guess, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It can perpetuate like that racism, unfortunately to white people who just don't get it you know and i will say that there is a moment in this film where a black character who is a ghost does a literal bug-eyed reaction to seeing the dead pizza delivery guy Mm. so i would say that if vesley was black like marlon waynes i would say this was an attempt to reclaim that archetype but because he's not it feels a bit like he didn't quite get that that was a harmful stereotype. Yeah. And so, listen, again, I don't want to talk over any people of color who want to talk about this subject, but that was something that I noticed and I thought was really interesting and I wanted to uh, mention in the show. So um, to any of our listeners, I'm really curious what you think of that. You know, here's a film that is really trying to be inclusive and is really trying to like create like great characters and be funny without being too stereotypical. Um, but there is this moment that it's like, ugh, you know, anyway, I'm really interested to hear what our audience thinks. Yeah. And I mean, it's right at the beginning of the film when it happens it- too. Yes, so, it is. For the film to open with that, I, I'm almost wondering if it's, like, something that filmmakers are trying not to let die 
in a way so that we don't forget where these stereotypes come from and where the roots really start. Because I think in order to prevent it from happening, which is the biggest irony in all of this, because in order to prevent it from happening more and more and more and perpetuating those harmful stereotypes, we can't forget it. Yet they're being like implanted in these new films. It's like, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> it is, it's, it's a huge catch 22, but I think that you're right. I think that when it's done by a white person, it's maybe not so tasteful. So, right. I mean, and we only, you know, we only really learn these things when we read and we talk to other people and we hear what other people have to say, listen, you know? Right, so, right. Yeah. Well. Mm. Mm. All right. <laughs> well, everyone, that's it for this month's episode of Good Morning, Nancy. Thank you so much for listening. Shout out to Nadia Moraga for helping us out with this episode. She's amazing, and we are incredibly grateful to her. Oh, and our Patreon is back! So if you have the means and appreciate our work, head on over to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy. And honestly, even just $2 a month is extremely helpful to us both. It pays for a cup of coffee while we do our research. Yes, and as always, a free way to support the show is by following us on Instagram and... Whoops. Nope, just Instagram. I got rid of Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm like, yes! And as always, a free way to support the show is by following us on social media. Oh my fucking God, what is wrong with me? Just read, just, just read. I know, I know. It's like my brain is implanting words in the sentence. Like, the It's fuck? remembering what you used to say. I That's guess so. And as always, a free way to support the show is by following us on Instagram at GoodMorningNancy. And truly, just reposting our content really helps others find our show. So also word of mouth, like tell your friends, spread the word. While you're texting away at like two o'clock in the morning, just be like, hey, good morning, Nancy is great. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again for listening, everyone. Stay safe out there. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye. <laughs>